take your Bible and turn to the book of Nehemiah. In the Old Testament, Nehemiah, we are just about at the end of the Old Testament historical books. We have, we're moving through the Bible, book by book, giving a summary of each of the books of the Bible so that we can understand the main thrust of these books and how they fit together. And today we're at the book of Nehemiah. Next week will be in Esther, and then we'll, that will be the concluding book in the historical section. And as you turn to the book of Nehemiah, here's the key concept for today. Remember who and whose you are. Who and whose. We belong to God as his people. Today when you watch the evening news, if they show a map of the center of the conflicts of our world, you will see in that map Iraq, Iran, Syria, Israel, and Gaza. If you were to take that map from the evening news this evening and overlay it on the map of the area in which the events of the book of Nehemiah is taking place, it would be the exact same map. In 539 BC, the order of world dominance shifted and Persia, which we now call Iran, conquered the Babylonian Empire. And for a while, Persia ruled their empire actually from the city of Babylon. Now this was good news for the Jews because the king of Persia had a policy of sending exiles back. And all of those exiles who were captured by Babylon were returned if they wanted to go. What we saw is in 538, last week we saw it from the book of Ezra, Zerubbabel went back uh, to Jerusalem with the task to rebuild the temple and to restart the religious life of the nation. Eighty years later, Ezra convinces the then king Artaxerxes to let another group of exiles go. Thirteen years later, in the book of Nehemiah, we come across Nehemiah who asks to lead back another small group of exiles with the task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Now I say all of this because uh, I want you to know that this is recorded in the Hebrew Bible in one book with the name Ezra. And Ezra is the author. But in our Bibles, we've separated it out into two books, Ezra and Nehemiah. For those of you who, have, who were reading Nehemiah over the course of last week to get ready for the lesson, you recognize that most of Nehemiah is first person from the lips of Nehemiah. And so that when we say that Ezra is the author of Nehemiah, what we actually mean is he's the compiler He's taking quotes, extensive quotes, from the memoirs of Nehemiah and added to them some of his own insights and so forth, and that's what becomes the book of Nehemiah in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the second half of the book of Ezra. And so when we come to Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah in our Bible divides into two very obvious sections. The first section of the book, chapters 1 through 6, is all about the physical rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem that have come down. The second half is about the uh, spiritual rebuilding of the people in chapters 7 through 13. And when the book of Nehemiah opens, uh, the scene is in the city of Susa which is inside the nation that we call Iran, King Artaxerxes had a summer palace there. He was in his palace, and Nehemiah worked in the court of the king. So we'll pick up the reading in verse 2. 
of Kislev, uh, verse, end of verse 1. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You see, what we need to understand is that in this day, a city, particularly a capital city with no walls, was an indication that the city was in disarray. The, sim the systems of the city were not functioning. The wall was a symbol of independence and it was a source of their protection. They needed a wall and Nehemiah hears there's no wall. It's a signal that Jerusalem is on hard times here, the people who have returned. Now Nehemiah, as we said, works in the courts of the king. The specific job that he has is that he is called the cup bearer to the king. What that means is he's the king's waiter. He brings the king his food and he has the job of making sure that no poison is in that food that the king is going to eat. It means, however, that he's trusted by the king. It also indicates some other things. It means probably that uh, he's a fairly handsome guy because that's the kind of people who would be working in the courts of the king. It means he has a very outgoing or at least affable personality. He's, you know, he's kind of pleasant to be around. That's the kind of people that work in the courts of the king. You know, the king doesn't have to have sad people around him if he doesn't want them. And so the king is used to Nehemiah being upbeat and being happy and and one day when Nehemiah is working in the palace of the king, the king notices that he's subdued and sad. And in chapter 2, we see that King Artaxerxes actually asks Nehemiah, what's going on? Why are you so sad? He's not used to seeing him like this. And Nehemiah tells him about the news that he's received. But when he tells him the story, he never uses the word Jerusalem. He tells him that the, 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 the city where my fathers are buried, the walls where my father's city where my fathers are buried are down. See, Nehemiah wants to keep this personal. This is not a political thing. This is not, you know, uh, jurisdiction kind of thing. This is personal. I have a connection to that city. It is my ancestral home and it's in disarray. And in chapter 2, Nehemiah essentially asks the king for a leave of absence to go back to lead the project to rebuild the walls. And Artaxerxes says yes. So in 444 BC, Nehemiah led another small band of exiles back to Jerusalem, to Judah, to accomplish the task. But it was a difficult task. Real work was ahead. And part of the difficulty was the opposition that they faced in doing it. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. It says, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Now, archaeologists have discovered tablets with inscriptions that refer to this Sanballat as the governor of Samaria. What's interesting about that is that Samaria is north of Jerusalem, north of Judah. And the other man, Tobiah, is referred to as an Ammonite. The Ammonites lived in the nation that we now call Jordan, which means they're east of Israel and the Jordan River. 
So what we see has happened is that as the exiles of the children of Israel are carried away to Babylon, other people have moved into their area, Judah. From the north and from the east, they've moved in, they've taken up residence, and they now consider this to be their land. And all of a sudden, here come back all of these Jews to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls, and uh, those who have, have populated the area are saying, hey, wait a minute, this is our property. You can't be here. Does any of this sound familiar? Are you listening to the news these days? And so the geographic struggle begins, and they object to Jerusalem being rebuilt for these kinds of reasons. But however, in, in chapter 3, the good work on the walls begin, and no sooner has it begun than opposi opposition breaks out. Let's read it in chapter 4, verse 1. We'll read about the opposition. It says, When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble, burned as they are? And the criticism continues. And we're going to see how to deal with criticism here in a moment. But I want, what I want you to understand is that criticism is always dangerous. It's dangerous for the critic and it's dangerous for the object of the criticism. Criticism easily backfires. I heard a story about a man who, who um, does efficiency training for business. He gives a seminar which talks about how to be more efficient in the way that you work, more efficient at your desk and all, so forth and so on. And it's a way to get the, the job done faster, cheaper, quicker. And uh, that's his training. And he was doing this seminar with a particular business when all of a sudden he stopped. And he said, well, I just want to mention, be careful how you apply this at home. I was watching my wife make breakfast one day. And I watched her go over to the refrigerator and carry something back to the counter and go over to the cupboard and carry back to the counter. And each time, each trip, she was just carrying one thing. And I thought to myself, you know what's wanted here? My efficiency training. <laughs> and so I laid out my efficiency strategy to my wife so that she could take, so it would take less time. And, and uh, they said, well, did it work? It'd take 30 minutes to make breakfast. And now I make it in 10. <laughs> Criticism can backfire, but we are all susceptible to criticism, and criticism comes our way, and we need to notice something about criticism, because it's true then, it's true now. Number one, critics tend to travel in packs. You're standing around listening to the critics speak, and as you get down to verse 7 and the verse, they, the group even grows, and they're kind of feeding off each other. There's this perverse pleasure of somebody being the, the, the object of ridicule and scorn, and, and so that, that group kind of grows. This is how Satan works to stop the work that God wants done. He brings up a pack of critics, and they'll be there every time the work is trying to be accomplished. And then we notice that the nature of this criticism is spiteful. I point that out because not every word of criticism is harmful. You know, sometimes what we're meant to do is learn from the critic. It may be a, a brother or a sister in Christ who does indeed care for us and wants our very best, but steps into our life and says, you know, this is not the direction. You know, I see bad stuff ahead if you keep going this way. And well, we don't like hearing that. Nobody likes to be corrected. Nobody, you know, we don't rejoice in that. It's painful. But it's necessary because you know this is coming out of love and concern. But that's not what this criticism is. This criticism is spiteful. 
This criticism is taunting and sarcastic and hurtful. And maybe you have been there being the receiver of that kind of criticism. How do you face criticism God's way when it's that kind of thing that's happening? And the answer is seen in the model of Nehemiah. The first thing that he did was not to go to Ezra and talk about these people over here, look how bad they are, and I kind of line up his allies and, and team up against the critics, and, or even to put down the shovel and forget the work and pick up a sword and go get them. That's not what he does. The first thing that he does is he talks to God. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. The first thing he does is he goes to God. Criticism should drive us to our knees. I want you to see that, that, that Nehemiah is showing his emotion, right? But he's showing it to God not to people. He's not lining up, you know, adversaries and, you know, the, the, against the, the, the critics and being emotional that way. He's showing his emotion to God. He's praying a prayer. I call this kind of prayer a go get them God prayer. There's a lot of those prayers in the Bible because there's a lot of people who come against the work of God. And what a go get them God prayer says is this, God, I believe this is your job. I believe you want me to do it. So you have to take care of the critics. Okay, I'm going to leave that to you so I can get back to work. And that's the second thing that we see him do right in the face of criticism. He keeps on in the task. He stays the course. Verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. And there is a connection between the criticism and the work because the people decide under Nehemiah's prayerful leadership, they decide that we're going to use this criticism as energy. You know, if these guys who are the enemies of God and the enemies of our nation, if these guys are so excited to be against us building a wall, this wall must be important. So we're going to get after it. They had a mind to work and they worked. That's what happens as you bathe your criticism in prayer. And so they, they, build the, they build a wall to half its height. It's a great success. It's rapidly moving. But what happens is that they show their humanity. The strength of the laborers is giving out. There is so much rubble, we cannot build the wall. They get to halfway, halfway, and they start to show that they're tired. Because tell me if this isn't true. Starting things is fun. Beginning is exciting. Starting off with a big vision in mind and wow, we're going to accomplish all of this, we're going to do all of that, that's great. Yes, you get excited about a beginning, a new chapter in your life, right? How about this? How about that exercise machine in your house? <laughs> when you first brought it home, baby, I'm on it every day, bicycling away, pretty soon it's a coat rack. Because... We, we slack off and we get fatigued in it and there's a fatigue factor that sets in. That's the way human nature approaches projects and that's what's happening here. They grow fatigued. Vince Lombardi once said that fatigue makes cowards of us all. The fearful rumor. In verse 11, we see it. It says, Also our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. And the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack. You know, do you see? Ten times over. There's just, you know, it's, it's beginning to be a panic regarding this rumor. 
means and we see a mirror of ourselves here how often is it true that all the things you worry about they don't happen they don't happen 90% of the things that we lay in bed about and we're thinking about tomorrow and oh I got to do this and I got to do that and what if this goes sideways and that doesn't work and then we find out I don't have to worry about all of that God had it in hand I must put it I entrust it to him that brought fear but God is able to help them Satan will sow seeds of discord so that the work will not get done. And here, what's happening in chapter 5 is a long-standing problem begins to emerge. See, when they went back to the land, there, there wasn't grocery stores, you know. They had to farm for all their food. They had to make their way, make their living, and so forth. And, and there was different levels of the society, and the poor people found it difficult to have enough come from the farm to support their families and pay the taxes. And so what happened was rich people were lending the poor people money to, to, to make ends meet, but they were taking their fields as collateral. And some of them were even taking their children as collateral, as bond servants, collateral for the loan. And this is tearing this society apart and they were barely getting by but now putting all this work into the wall there nobody's tending to the fields and things are starting to disintegrate and Zerubbabel sees that this society cannot handle this we have to be united if we're going to do this job so, so Zerubbabel in chapter five, 5 calls a meeting you can't live like this you can't be divided against each other we have to be united and in verse 11 of chapter 5 he calls the people to give the property back so that everyone can be provided for and that's just what they do and there's some principles there that I just want you to see principle number one is that wherever you are a leader whether it's in a family or in a business or a ministry when you are a leader your job is to define reality and you, your job is to define when an emergency is called for. And if it's an emergency situation, take emergency tactics. That's your job. You just can't kind of coast and think that everything's going to work out. Uh, Nehemiah recognizes this is an emergency. We've got to change the way we're doing business. But there's a second lesson there. Sometimes we think, well, if God is in this project, it's just going to sail right along. There'll always be money, there'll always be workers, there'll always be everything. And, and if we hit a bump in the road, oh, oh, maybe God isn't in this. Maybe this isn't God's will. We've got to watch that because the work is hard and the opposition is real. And sometimes we will abs absolutely need to work hard and battle to get the job done. Now, I remind us of that because we are involved in the greatest project of all time. And that project is to win and build passionate, lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. And don't you think there's going to be opposition against that? There is. And th there will be times that we'll be called to do the hard thing and to do it together. But when we do, that's where fulfillment is felt and friendships are forged and we have an eternal purpose. And the people bond together. And by the end of chapter 6, or at least verse 15, the work is done. It says, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul, in 52 days, when our enemies heard about this and all the surrounding nations were afraid and they lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of God. They saw that God was working with the people to build that wall. Job number one is done. The physical wall is rebuilt. But job number two is coming. The, the, the people need to be rebuilt spiritually. What happens in the next few chapters is this. By the time we get to chapter 8, the people are wanting to they come together in a festival. And a part of that is they want the words of the law of Moses read to them again. 
And so in chapter 8, Ezra comes back on the story. And Ezra stands and he reads uh, the, the, the words of the law. And if you read through the details there, you'll find that the Levites spread throughout the people who are listening. And they explain what these words mean. They, as he's reading the, the writings of Moses, the Levites are kind of explaining throughout the crowd, well, this is what you're supposed to do about that. And this is how we're supposed to live in light of that. And the people begin to understand, wow, that's not how we're living. We are way out of whack in terms of honoring God in the way that we live. And they begin to weep. Great sadness that comes over the, the nation. And it's Ezra and Nehemiah that say, hold on, guys, let's not, it's not a day of sadness we're rejoicing in the job well done, but let's listen to what the Word of God says. And so they, they, they calm them down, they listen to the reading of the Word, and in fact, they enter into a celebration called the Festival of Booths. It's a, a Jewish festival that celebrates God's protection uh, with them through the wilderness wanderings. And they do this, this great festival uh, as they uh, listen to the reading of the Word, and it takes some time, but the, by the time you get to chapter 9, there is a great repentance on the part of the people. They want to bring their lives back in line with what the Word of God says. And so by the time you get to chapter 10, I, I know I'm moving fast, but I'm summarizing. In chapter 10, the people make four promises to God. They recognize that repentance does, doesn't just mean feeling sorry, but it means a change of life. And once again, we see a national repentance and they turn to God and they make these promises. These are the promises. Verse 29 of chapter 10, they promise, we will submit to the word of the Lord. Verse 30 of chapter 10, they say, we promise we will separate ourselves from the world. Specifically, we will not let our children marry people outside of the faith. Third promise, verse 31, we will honor the Sabbath. We will not work on the Sabbath day. That is a day holy to God. And the fourth promise, we will support the work of the temple, bringing in tithes and offerings. Those four promises, they are on a, on a spiritual moment saying we will be obedient to, the God and live as, to God and be the people of God. And then in chapters 11 and 12, a few things happen. We see that they, they cast lots to see who's going to live behind the walls in Jerusalem because not everybody can fit. And a certain number of people move into the city of Jerusalem. In chapter 12, they have a processional celebrating the finishing of the walls. And in chapter 12, verse 43, it says, the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem can be heard far away. So, uh, Nehemiah has governed Jerusalem for 12 years. He's dealt with enemies, he's unified the people, he's led a spiritual revival, and he's repopulated the city. If only the book stopped there. Uh, Nehemiah's on leave. He actually has a job back in Persia. He goes back to King Artaxerxes to report all that's happened. We don't know how long he spends away, but it's too long. Because in the time that it takes for him to go back, report to the king, and then be sent back to govern, the people backslide in every single one of those promises. Remember the promise, we will obey the word of the Lord? But when, uh, when Nehemiah comes back from King Artaxerxes, he's fine. That, remember Tobiah, the Ammonite? Tobiah is renting a room inside the temple. So Nehemiah goes in, kicks him out, kicks all his stuff out, and if you read it carefully, has the place fumigated. Solution, all right? And, and vow number two, remember no mixed marriages. Well, in chapter 13, verse 23, it says, I saw men of Judah 
who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And if you go over to verse 25, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Have you ever been so frustrated you pull your hair out? He's so frustrated he's pulling other people's hair out. Right? They went back on that promise. Remember the vow, keep the Sabbath? Well, they're doing business on the Sabbath just to make a little more money. And the vow, we will support the work of the Lord in the temple. They're not doing that to the tune of the fact that the Levites actually have to leave the ministry and do secular work to make ends meet. That's what he's, every one of those promises they backslide on. And Nehemiah, out of pure passion, just corrals them back to those promises and, and deals with every one of those issues. Where at the end of the book, he says this. You can imagine him saying this the very last few verses with a tired sigh. The priests and the Levites of everything foreign. I assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provisions for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first, fru and first fruits. Phew! Remember me with favor, oh my God. I can see him slumped in his easy chair when he's saying that at the end of the day. Remember me with favor. He's tired from the extensive work. But as we look over the, the landscape of this book, a few lessons pop up. Lesson number one, be willing to move out of your comfort zone if God breaks your heart about something. Nehemiah's heart was broken about the lack of the walls in his city, but he did something about it. How oftentimes do we look at something and it really upsets us, we, we get concerned about it, it's an injustice and we know it, but we kind of say somebody else will do it. Let criticism or fear take you off of the road that God wants you on. Expect it and don't believe the lie that if God wants a project done, it will be easy. It's never that way. Number four, do not play around with sin. Do not think you can dabble. Deal with sin decisively and abruptly. That's what we see in Nehemiah. And fifth, live according to the truth of the Word of God. The Word of God is a guide for life. When Ezra stood and he read the Word of the Lord, the people's question was, what should we do about it? Not, how can we change it so that we're not bothered by it? Live according to the Word of God because that is God's best and God's will for you. When we say yes to those teachings, we will remember who and whose we are, the people of God.